0: podcast begins now with this preamble. And it's a preamble to a rather long-winded introduction before we even get to some readings from the beginning of infinity. Today's episode explains the concept of bad philosophy. And as we will come to see, bad philosophy is that set of ideas that actively prevents the growth of knowledge. It is all about trying to enforce ways and means of shutting down the asking of questions or deliberately putting artificial obstacles in the way of critically and rationally evaluating claims. Now as I was making my usual introduction to this episode, which I will play for you shortly, I realized upon going back to listen to it, I was assuming a little too much when it comes to bad philosophy, the bad turns that have happened with respect to philosophy, especially over recent years. I want to flesh out those a little more here and now with just a little summary about these bad turns and where to go to find out more. Uh, Some additional reading if you like. Now, the first of these bad turns that I mention is what's known as the Sokol hoax. The Sokol hoax, or the Sokol affair, was a turning point of sorts in the recent history of philosophy. Alan Sokol, after whom the Sokol hoax is named, is a physicist and a mathematician who was concerned with the standards of scholarship in some areas of philosophy. Uh, He was specifically concerned they were subpar to put it euphemistically. At the other extreme, you might describe what was going on in philosophy and what he was worried about as a kind of academic fraud. And the fact that this academic fraud has become the norm in some areas of philosophy, and it has a lot of influence. Now, in short, these areas of philosophy that people are concerned about are sometimes known as postmodern philosophy. There's a lot of other names for them, but that's an umbrella term. And the key feature for outsiders to philosophy to notice about postmodern philosophy is that it has a somewhat impenetrable language. Now, of course, this is true of many academic disciplines. Uh, it's true of certain aspects of physics, any area of expertise in science, parts of medicine. So, you know, when you get to the upper levels of expertise in any area, you're going to find there is a kind of jargon. But there's a difference between honestly. Trying to explain things clearly using the specialist language of a particular subject and dishonestly representing what's going on in a subject area using the language of some other subject area. If that sounds confusing, well, we need to see an example in action. What Sokol was concerned about, and what many of us are concerned about, is the rather liberal use of terminology taken from the hard sciences and from mathematics and then repurposed for use in a completely different area in a rather dishonest way, to obscure meaning rather than to clarify things. So, for example, here's here's something that is taken seriously by some postmodernists. This example is by Jacques Lacan. It's been published. It's an example of postmodern philosophy. Let's read it. Let's attempt to read it. Thus, by calculating that signification according to the algebraic method used here, namely, s signifier over s signified equals s the statement, with s is equal to minus one produces s is equal to the square root of minus one. Okay, so this is what the postmodernist philosopher Jacques Lacan wrote. Who knows what it means? Yes, it's taken out of context. But even out of its context, we should be able to, if we are familiar with mathematics, attempt to understand at least some part of it. And there's nothing there that has anything to do with mathematics, despite the fact it's couched in terms of mathematical formalism. It's misrepresenting mathematics. But perhaps I'm being unfair. Perhaps it's unfair just to pull out that weird-sounding thing and claim that all postmodernism is therefore bunk. Well, let's have a look at something else. Here's something written by the French postmodernist Bourdard. And he wrote... Perhaps history itself has to be regarded as a chaotic formation in which acceleration puts an end to linearity and the turbulence created by acceleration deflects history definitively from its end, just as such turbulence distances effects from their causes. End quote. Now, the point about that passage is: yes, it's got impenetrable texts. Um, And and, and attempting to extract any useful information from it is almost impossible. It's clouded in jargon. But that's not the only problem. It has taken terms from physics, chaotic formation, uh, acceleration, and from mathematics, linearity, and from physics, again, turbulence, and has completely bastardised their use. It's a word soup pretending to be deep. Now, I'm not going to provide... Uh, Lots of examples of this. Anyone who's interested can merely go and look up postmodernism and examples of postmodernist writing from some of the greats. Some other names might be Jacques Derrida, uh, Michel Foucault. These are some famous names in postmodernism. And one only needs to take a short look at anything that these guys produce to notice that it really, there's not much there. There's the pretense of intellectual endeavor. There's the pretense of producing knowledge but it's more akin to poetry than actual philosophy. Now, many people before Sokol had of course noticed this. Many had wondered how it is that such things got published in official journals, and they were published in official academic journals. What Sokol did that was special and different and was the first, but it certainly wasn't going to be the last, was the calling out of the emperor as having no clothes. By creating a text himself, So he went to the trouble of writing a postmodernist text. He was a mathematician, a physicist. He understood the science, and he decided to deliberately parody the style of writing that that went on in some of these journals. And so the result of his hoax, of his parody, was to produce this paper, which is called Transgressing the Boundaries Towards a Transformative Hermeneutics of Quantum Gravity. Now, that paper, nonsense as it was, Parody, as it was, was not detected as nonsense or parody by the reviewers and it was submitted to a journal called Social Text, accepted for publication and ultimately published. So it was taken seriously by some postmodern philosophers, even though it was deliberately written as a parody. And even to this day, it is still defended by some as actually being authentic rather than the parody that it is. Now, arguments continue to be made today that the Circle hoax did not fully demonstrate the poverty of postmodern philosophy. Some say it didn't even demonstrate the poverty of postmodern philosophy publishing or reviewing. And, and people are committed now to still take postmodernism seriously. In fact, more so than at the time of the Circle hoax. The Circle hoax did not accomplish what many of us hoped it would. Things have gotten worse. But If you're watching this or listening to this, you might very well be thinking, who cares? Who cares if these people in their ivory towers want to talk nonsense? What is the worry? Aside from the fact that taxpayer money and funding goes to these universities and these people remain employed, not by contributing things to society, contributing actual knowledge, but by being engaged in a kind of racket and worse than a racket. We'll come to that. What's the worry? Like, after all, some people are, of course, interested and have turned, for example, the study of Harry Potter into a serious academic endeavour. There might be some merit to that. But there is something far more sinister at work with postmodernism. Postmodern writing and its explicit, deliberate attack on clarity comes from a deeper dogma about the possibility of even speaking clearly or the purpose of speaking clearly. And the reason for this is that is that the doctrine of postmodernism is about denying the fact that there is anything to speak clearly about. There is no objective truth on the theories and doctrines of postmodernism. And we'll come to some consequences about that. Now, Seiko really did disrobe postmodernism back in the 90s, in the mid-90s. And Personally, that was a key time for me because I was just entering university and I was taking on physics and philosophy. So I was well aware of the debate even back then. And I remember feeling relief that there was a hero among the scientists who were standing up to this nonsense in academia and philosophy in particular. And I felt some hope at that time, just like the emperor's new clothes, everyone, that everyone would then admit that the emperor had been called out, and there was this poverty of content in postmodernism and postmodern-type thinking, and that the philosophy itself was bad. But I was wrong in my hopes, at least at that stage and up until now, because ever since, my hopes have been dashed. Things haven't gotten better, not in the universities. They've gotten worse, far worse. They've gotten worse in the media, they've gotten worse in education, they've gotten worse in politics, and the rate at which bad ideas are being produced in academia are are accelerating. The rate at which bad ideas are being produced and promoted throughout social media, traditional media, schools, the rate of that production of bad ideas is accelerating. And I mean bad ideas, not merely false ideas, bad ideas. I mean ideas that are calling into question the legitimacy of actual knowledge, of science, of the enlightenment, of reason itself and the legitimacy of pursuing those things. And make no mistake, in many places, it's dire. Now, happily, almost in lockstep with the rate at which these bad ideas have increased in terms of their apparent popularity and the rate at which they are being promoted to all spheres of society across many of our institutions, there has equally arisen a resistance. A coalition of people coming up and standing together against what is swiftly becoming what could possibly only be described as a new religion. Now, one of the best, most articulate thinkers, and there are many um, to choose from here, but one of the best and most articulate amongst these thinkers, and amongst these public intellectuals, is Brett Weinstein. Now, I've personally criticized Brett on some technical philosophical matters and matters of physics in just, I think, the last episode of Topcast, or the, the episode before that. But I can only do that. I can only engage in that criticism of Brett Weinstein because I do spend a lot of time listening to him because he's a worthwhile voice to listen to. With Brett, it's important to pay careful attention to how well he articulates some of these problems. What he says on many of these matters to do with bad philosophy, um, bad, certain types of bad science, is brilliant because he himself is a brilliant thinker. He's very cr- courageous and I've found him prescient on some of these matters. I'm gonna play a clip for you shortly of Brett being so prescient, but just before we get to that, I'm just going to mention uh, three of his fellow travelers with respect to all of this stuff. Fellow travelers in the battle against the new postmodernism. Now, traditional postmodernism, this denial of um, truth, this denial of the possibility of objective knowledge, denial even of reality, let alone merely the denial of objective morality, That's traditional postmodernism, and those ideas are still the underlying doctrine for everything that has happened since in the tradition of postmodernism, which has begun to push the idea that, for example, science has no special place in understanding the physical world. It pushes the idea that science is to some extent corrupt and cannot possibly be objective, and and it's certainly the opinion of many of these postmodernists that science is far more about power and social relationships than it is about finding the truth about the physical world. In other words, people who speak like this think that what is deemed scientific knowledge is deemed scientific knowledge only because certain people with power have historically been able to claim that this is scientific knowledge, that it doesn't have anything to do about encounters with objective reality, that instead it's powerful white men or something like that, arguing amongst themselves and arriving at a consensus, and that this is what produces scientific knowledge. And it's because certain people that have traditionally had power, have historically had power, have simply decided arbitrarily that this is what is the best theory in science, the best explanations in science. Now, today, in the 2010s and now into the early 2020s, the new breed of postmodernism philosophy comes to us in all sorts of guises. There's cultural studies, certain breeds of anthropology, gender studies, some forms of literary and media studies. Some of the humanities and some of the social sciences have been infected by this stuff, which has broadly been, which has broadly been described by some of these academics who, who push back against it, grievance studies. What postmodernism today has evolved into in some places is a sole focus upon power relationships between people. According to this mode of thinking, those groups of people who have historically held power have done so for illegitimate reasons, and thus any knowledge associated with them, for example, scientific knowledge, must be regarded as dubious because it was produced by the so-called oppressor class. The consequence is today that people who appear to have been descended from those groups who had power in the past, so people in the past who had power, Individuals today that are related to those people in some way, no matter how distantly related, must be judged as in some way culpable for and benefiting from those illegitimate structures. And that would include the knowledge that they produce or their claim to be producing objective knowledge. Now, many others have spoken far more eloquently about all this, but the point before us now is about the philosophy on which all of this stuff rests. So once more, despite the Sokol hoax. We have yet again academic journals publishing papers from university-employed intellectuals pushing dubious ideas, poorly phrased and even more poorly researched. And so because the fight isn't over, just like Alan Sokol, some people have decided to once again reveal the poverty of ideas by committing a hoax and showing the emperor's new clothes are in fact non-existent. And in the most recent case, which is worth researching, looking up and looking at the history of, it happened uh, in, throughout 2019, uh, and is known as the Sokal Squared hoax, <laughs> or just Sokal Squared, uh, or the grievance study issue. And this Sokal Squared event was conducted by Peter Bukosian, who was a philosopher, Helen Pluckrose, who was a writer, and James Lindsay, who's a mathematician. And they submitted absolutely ridiculous papers to a number of journals, to a number of gender studies journals and and cultural studies journals and various other journals that they've described as grievance studies. Now, I say that these were absolutely ridiculous because for a typical person not indoctrinated with the grievance study nomenclature and the grievance study way of speaking, they weren't merely ridiculous, they were hilarious. And so I won't go through the details, but again, worth looking up. Despite the fact they were ridiculous and hilarious, they were taken totally seriously and published as serious pieces. And these journals that publish them are themselves, in a broader sense, driving a philosophy which itself drives political movements, political movements of grievance. And rather than summarise the papers, I'll just point you to Google and just go to Google and... Google Circle Squared or The Grievance Studies Affair. Again, why be interested in this? Why be animated by any of this? Philosophers really do tend to have the ear of people in academia, in the universities. And moreover, those same intellectuals have the ear of people who write school curricula. So school syllabuses, where students who go off to primary school and secondary school Uh, are taught things that are written by people in committees. I know this. I've been on some of these committees. And these committees consult very heavily with university academics. And in particular, these kind of philosophers. These kind of philosophers are desperate to have input into such school curricula. Because if you can get them young, we know that's a good way to change society from the ground up. Moreover, this material, not only does it get into school curricula, it gets into traditional media. Because the media can at times, journalists can at times be rather uncritical. If someone is employed at a university and they've got a PhD and the title of professor, and if they're interviewed about important issues like racism or discrimination or the law or science, the media takes them seriously. They want to have expert opinion after all. And if the media takes them seriously, so too will politicians eventually. And it becomes part of the moral zeitgeist, the background culture. The deference to expertise in the community has two sides to it. On the one hand, in times of crisis, it can cause people to swiftly turn to the people who've got genuine knowledge and ability, capability, to solve pressing problems that society has. And that's important, that's important to have Uh, deference probably isn't the best word, but a healthy respect for expertise. But on the other hand, this deference can turn from being mere respect into a granting of authority to experts over matters they don't really have much business in, or where the expert's expertise is merely illusory. They're not really experts because there's no actual subject matter there over which they can be experts. And this is what postmodernism often is, and what, is, what it is criticised as. A, a, a subject with very little content. But, of course, it should be media, or the media's, and indeed everyone's, responsibility to critically assess which experts are genuinely and honestly trying to solve problems And which, on the other hand, are attempting to make a grab for power and authority. And presently, as I write this in August 2020, there are still riots going on in some places where there have not been riots for many years, certainly not at this intensity. And there are calls for revolution and changing of entire systems of governance. And yes, this has happened before. There is, to some extent, a tradition of calling for revolutions. But this latest one has a somewhat different flavour even if it might've happened before. It's had a different flavor to anything that's happened in my life, certainly. And the different flavor is in saying that the present traditions, cultures, and institutions that exist today in what, in the beginning of infinity sense, we might describe as a tradition of criticism and the enlightenment is itself being described as a source of great evil and that it itself needs to be uprooted and replaced by something else, which is never properly specified. And so this is a worry. These calls for revolution don't come from nowhere. They don't exist in a vacuum. There are bad ideas at the heart of all this. The ideas come from the university and they spill out from the university into wider society. So before I get to the actual introduction, (laughs) this is is the preamble, remember, the preamble to the introduction, and then we'll get to the readings. Um, Before I get to the introduction of today's episode, I just want to play a short clip of the brilliant Brett Weinstein, himself speaking in early 2019. So early 2019, this is, cast your mind back, before Corona, before some of the worst riots that were happening uh, across the United States, across Europe, that made it to certain parts of Australia before all the protests, the marches, the tearing down of monuments, the defacing of things, before all of that, Brett Weinstein himself found himself in a very difficult situation where at his place of employment, where he was working as a professor of biology, Evergreen University, he was uh, protested by a mob, can only be described as that. Uh, Protest might be uh, euphemistic as well. Uh, And eventually he was driven out, forced to resign. And so that was early 2019. And at that time, he said this.
1: I have to say, I keep being invited to talk about free speech on college campuses. And every time I'm invited, I make the same point, which is this isn't about free speech, and this is only tangentially about college campuses. This is about a breakdown in the basic logic of civilization, and it's spreading. And college campuses may be the first dramatic battle, but Of course this is going to find its way into the courts. It's already found its way into the tech sector. Um, It's going to find its way to the highest levels of governance if we're not careful. And it actually does jeopardize the ability of civilization to continue to function. How has it gotten to this point? Uh, In part, it has gotten to this point because we let it fester. These ideas were wrong when they first took hold in the academy and instead of shutting them down we created phony fields that act as a kind of analytical affirmative action where ideas that do not deserve to survive are given sustenance. These ideas are so toxic and so ill-conceived that to the extent that they are allowed to hold sway as if One truth is equal to every other truth, right? My truth is as good as your truth. To the extent that that idea is allowed to pervade other institutions on which civilization depends, civilization will come apart. So we have to fight this and don't get the sense that it is just about college campuses or kids overreacting because um, that ain't what this is. This is far more important than that.
0: That's quite a set of observations and and quite a warning um, about how university campuses are just the first place where this might have started, dramatic as it is in the universities. And what's happened? It's spilled out onto the streets in many places. Uh, It's resulted in people seriously calling for... uh, What happened at Evergreen University was that the students called for, essentially, the upending of the way in which the university structure was, had been built, and even though Evergreen University was a very, very liberal arts college, and so these people were politically already from one side of politics, it's been taken even further, such that someone who is extremely liberal, like Brett Weinstein, was driven out. Now, it's been spilling out of universities for a long time. I know something about schools. It's in schools already. It's been in schools since the 90s. And so what we tend to get less of, is not a celebration of all that is great and all that is good and ways in which we can preserve traditions that work and traditions of criticism that work. Instead, we talk about the ways in which structures can be destroyed or brought down or the ways in which we can transgress boundaries, for example. Transgressing boundaries is very much a theme that was there when I was at school, uh, sort of mid-early 90s kind of thing, and it's it's still kind of there now. It's an explicit theme that runs throughout English syllabi, for example. Postmodernism drives large parts of the school curriculum, and this should be a concern for whatever other concerns one has about schooling. This should be a concern to people. It is only a small group of academics, after all, that are generating these bad ideas in the universities These bad philosophies are not being produced typically in the school of physics or chemistry or medicine or engineering or history, sometimes history. They're mainly being produced in schools of sociology, anthropology, and philosophy. And they have great influence and they're gaining ever more actual authority as some of these people who produce them rise through the ranks of academia and either become or influence administrators. And once these tenants become custom and practice and received wisdom at universities, they then become a background to culture. And as I say, they infiltrate the media and politics and the bureaucracy in the government. And so this is why this chapter that we're about to read about bad philosophy is so important right now. And I fear it's going to become only more and more important as time goes on until, until such a day And if such a day, but we hope until, bad philosophy is no longer on the ascendancy. And until bad philosophy is no longer on the ascendancy, intellectual types have to continue to call it out because it undergirds so much that is bad in politics or bad in broader education. It actively prevents knowledge, objective knowledge, from being produced, not least because there's a chilling effect on the very act of criticism or even of simply attempting to create knowledge that just might be a counter to the dominant political narrative that exists. It has a chilling effect on the freedom of speech. Let's put that <laughs> plainly. These philosophies have at their heart certain modes of thinking which prevent people from criticising them. Now, to some, this might seem like hyperbole. And to me, it can seem that way as well. I encounter none of what Brett said earlier, the, the real concerns about this and the, what, what happened to Brett, for example, it's never happened to me, OK? Um, what happened to him isn't part of my day to day. I only witness these kind of weird events, riots, defacing of, of monuments, um, um, people shouting at each other without listening to each other, acts of violence, um, protesting. I watch this from afar, okay? It's not something that affects me each and every day. But Brett Brett Weinstein does speak about the breakdown of the logic of civilization. And in some places we can see that. A riot is just that. And the important thing is, we have less reason to riot than ever before, especially in the West, in developed countries. Life is better than it ever has been for almost everyone and is getting better continually. But the rioting has increased. Public protests have increased. People are speaking as if things are getting worse all the while they're actually getting better. Putting aside parochial concerns that are just happening right now about viruses and lockdowns. So this is the breakdown of logic. Things are getting better. People are saying they are worse. Things continue to get better. People are rioting because they say nothing has changed. Now these ideas, these bad philosophies driving this intense feeling that things are really terrible and that things are getting worse or not changing have tested themselves already in the laboratory of the university. And they were not sufficiently criticized while still in the university. And so because they've been allowed to thrive and being cultured and have now sprung out of the university, as anti-rational memes do, as mind viruses, so to speak, they have entered schools to some extent and to an increasing extent, and to the media to another extent, and they're proliferating across social media and informing the worldview of many, many people, including political leaders and others who work in government and hold positions of power. So this is the context, and I might say urgent context, In which we encounter this chapter from the beginning of infinity as i say the riots some of the civil unrest in recent months has not occurred in a vacuum there is a philosophy at the heart of this even if it does not seem to be a struggle between opposing philosophies but rather something more upstream so to speak like mere political differences so yeah it's not mere political differences it's not merely left versus right it's not merely authoritarians versus libertarians it's also about the philosophy that holds whether or not there's a possibility of uncovering objective knowledge. And whether or not objective knowledge and coming to uncover it, coming to discover objective knowledge, to create objective knowledge, whether or not that can help resolve differences. And if we have differences, how we go about resolving those differences, whether we should talk those differences through. So we need to take a step back, back before the present moment and all the strife and before even the last circle hoax. And the next chapter is going to allow us to do this. So finally, let's actually get into it. Well, my my other introduction to it. And for that, I'm going to change a venue. Hello and welcome to episode twenty-eight. This is chapter twelve, a physicist's history of bad philosophy with some remarks on bad science. Now I try not to have favorite chapters. But if someone was to ask me if I was to only read one chapter out of all of the beginning of Infinity, it would probably be this one. And for me, it's certainly a personal one, and I'll probably go through through a few anecdotes as we go through this chapter. It's a personal one for me because it brings together physics and philosophy in a way that I encountered both subjects it tries to explain why it is that physics can be so confusing sometimes for undergraduates who take on a degree in physics and why philosophy can sometimes be so disappointing at university for an undergraduate who takes on philosophy at university and i did both of these things and so it resonated with me i thought as i was reading through it i just found myself nodding the entire time going yes that was precisely my experience this is what i understand philosophy as presented at the university to be about. So I studied physics at university, and there were certain disappointments about studying physics at university, not least of which was the quantum mechanics material, which we've been through previously. And I was disappointed in the way it was presented at university because it was presented in this obscure way. The mystery was really amped up. It was presented as if, well, you don't need to fully understand this. It was very much instrumentalist in that way. Instead, it was all about, can you solve these numerical problems? Can you work through these uh, tutorial sets? And that was the measure by which you were successful at university in doing physics was whether or not you could uh, basically do maths tests repeatedly okay there was less in terms of trying to explain what was actually going on with many of the experiments and philosophy was disappointing for a whole different set of reasons obviously there's no numerical problems that need to be solved there however there's a new kind of vocabulary that needs to be used and what I found was that as I went through undergraduate philosophy, it became increasingly opaque to analysis. It was just more and more difficult to understand what in fact was being said. And it felt as though the lecturers or that the books that we were or the readings we were asked to undertake were trying to obscure the point. And when the point was illuminated, it was found to be so trite or trivial and obvious, that one was left feeling as though there was little substance to philosophy and that the rumors were true. And when I say rumors, I mean, I heard from many people that philosophy is a fairly worthless discipline at university. And to some extent, the rumors were indeed true. Some watching this now might still wonder what the importance of philosophy is. Philosophy as an academic discipline garners possibly the least respect of any subject that can be taken at university. Although these days we do hear people sort of tongue-in-cheek talking about certain kinds of dance theory that one might take on at university and that these kind of degree programs are even more useless we have to understand there are two ways in which to refer to philosophy. There's philosophy, the academic discipline, the way in which it is presented at university, and there is philosophy as it's actually done by good philosophers. Good philosophers include Popper. And I should say here right at the outset that I read very little Popper at university, despite the fact I undertook a degree which was subtitled philosophy of science, bachelor of science, philosophy of science. And in my philosophy of science degree, I read very little Popper. It wasn't until later that in, in encountering David Deutsch's work that I realized there was this guy called Karl Popper and he explained philosophy of science. And it was then that I took up the reading of Karl Popper outside of my university course. And so although I am in some sense credentialed in the philosophy of science, none of the knowledge that I, or very little of the knowledge that I gained at university, actually makes me feel equipped to talk about the philosophy of science. Instead, what makes me feel equipped to talk about the philosophy of science when I do is the reading that I did beyond the university, specifically um, the reading I did of Karl Popper's work. So the the negative experience that I had with philosophy at university, or largely had, uh, I should say there were bright points. I did read a lot of good philosophers and philosophies, and I found it interesting as an intellectual exercise or an intellectual puzzle, so to speak. It was kind of fun. That kind of philosophy is like doing a crossword puzzle. It's just fun to do for some people. However, there was very little of practical use in many of the philosophers that I read. Good as those philosophers were, brilliant as those philosophers were, few of them were able to explain, for example, how it is that science worked, which is what I was really interested in, or what the difference between, let's say, science and mathematics happened to be, or indeed, what the purpose of philosophy was in the first place. All of these things are practical problems that, for someone interested in science, mathematics, philosophy, would be interested in finding out concrete answers to. Instead, some philosophers were kind of daydreamers, on the one hand, or well, let's just put it plainly, academic frauds on the other. They were pretending to solve problems that were either not problems in the first place or hiding the fact that they were solving the problem, burying the problem behind a veneer of complicated language. And so because there is this way of presenting philosophy at universities, where we have certain philosophers who build up grand philosophical structures on the one hand, Uh, solving esoteric-type problems in philosophy, or on the other, these linguistic philosophers that we're going to come to, who are obscuring the, the real richness of the problems in philosophy behind all of this verbiage and new lexicon and weird words that they invent and just generally not speaking clearly. This is what a whole lot of philosophers have done traditionally and continue to do. That because of these two issues... Philosophers difficult to understand on the one hand and not really solving any problems, and philosophers hiding the ball when it comes to um, their use of language and trying to hide the actual problems that are important to solve in philosophy. Because we have this issue of academic in academic philosophy, quite rightly, a bunch of people, especially scientific types, dismiss philosophy altogether because they look at what philosophy is as an academic discipline, in, the, in many of the universities, probably not all, but certainly in the universities that I went through, and one doesn't need to try hard uh, with Google to find out that what subjects are offered to undergraduates, especially at university today, don't differ much from the kind of academic subjects that were offered in philosophy 20 years ago. In some senses, they've even gone downhill. It's quite right that there are certain scientific types who say they've got no time for philosophy, because they're interested in reality, so they say, in the nuts and bolts of how things work. Prominent public intellectuals like Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, they've made disparaging remarks over the years about philosophy. And they can't really be blamed for this to a large extent because if their experience of academic philosophy is in speaking to certain academic philosophers or even perhaps students undertaking philosophy at university, Then they'll be left with the impression that it's an opaque, pointless exercise in gazing at one's navel, as the cliche goes. But it's important to note that this idea that philosophy cannot be used to solve practical problems, or that it has no practical use, that if if you want to understand reality, that science is the only real game in town, it's important to understand that that position is a philosophy that these people who espouse those kind of sentiments that disparage philosophy as a discipline in its entirety, not just the academic thing as it's taught at university, but philosophy qua subject, so to speak, that they have a philosophy in mind. They have a philosophy of reality. They have a certain materialism, one might imagine, about how reality is organized, that if you want to understand the nuts and bolts of reality, that Understanding science is the only way to go about that. Of course, this closes them off to a whole bunch of other things, things that are not, let's say, part of the physical universe, but might be part of abstract reality. And we've talked about the reality of abstractions here in this series, and David's talked about it in The Beginning of Infinity. So we know that abstract entities exist, and that they have real effects in the world. And there are certain kinds of abstract reality abstract entities, that only a philosophical understanding can help us to appreciate how those things work. So the idea that science is the only way in which we can understand reality as a whole is itself a philosophy, and it's a claim about science without being a part of science. So automatically, anyone who makes such a claim that philosophy is useless, or that philosophy isn't really needed, that science can do everything, has made a philosophical claim because it's not a claim from within science. And today we've got a a new kind of philosopher, a new kind of folk philosopher, we we might say, uh, one who claims that they never do philosophy or don't do philosophy or pretend that they're not um, interested in philosophy because they've stepped beyond it. They've evolved intellectually beyond what philosophy can possibly offer to become meta in some way. They're meta philosophers, they're beyond philosophy. Um, there's a long tradition of this kind of thing as well. Um, The kind of thinker that asserts that the language and the words are barely sufficient to capture the complexity of their thoughts. Now, there's certainly a truth to this in some ways. uh, I speak a lot about inexplicit knowledge, and David explains what inexplicit knowledge is in The Beginning of Infinity. And so it is absolutely true that language cannot capture everything about reality to the level of clarity that we might wish. But some people elevate that notion, that very real problem, to a new philosophy and give themselves an excuse, I would argue, in not speaking clearly or not striving for clarity. And that their use of obscure language or their use of neologisms, simply making up new words, is explained by the fact that language is simply unable to do the job of conveying their deepest, most interesting thoughts to the world. And so therefore, they have to explain using flowery language to the rest of us. Um, and that if you don't understand what the new flowery language really means, then it's a deficiency on your part, not their part. They're doing their best with the crude tools of language that they have. And so we see this, we've seen this with theologians traditionally. Uh, you ask a theologian a uh, religious explanation, and you'll typically get something that is quite complicated or mystical, and difficult to understand. Uh, and if you ask what that means, you'll get an even more obscure mystical explanation. And so, the the inexplicable is supposed to explain the inexplicable. So when it comes to this idea that language struggles to explain the most complicated concepts and ideas that we have, there's a truth there. But there's a difference between honestly trying to communicate clearly and trying to get a complicated idea, uh, trying to get that into the minds of other people by using the simplest language that one can conjure in the moment, and the antithesis of that of having perhaps not a complicated idea, but a very simple idea, and then dressing that in very complicated sounding language so that it seems as though one has a deeper or more insightful point than one really does. And I think there are dishonest actors in philosophy. There's not many of them, but they're out there. Um, And when it comes to things like postmodernism, it's very difficult to tell at times whether the person that you're speaking with or communicating with who speaks in postmodernist type language or relativist type language, whether they are honestly deluded in some way and think that there is something there that they're trying to explain, whether they've been perhaps even inculcated or brainwashed to some extent with these weird ideas in this weird language. That's a possibility that they're honestly trying to convey the contents of their mind using complicated, sounded language that none of us can quite get a handle on. Or on the other hand, they're simply pretending. Because there are cranks out there, crank being a technical term of someone pretending to have knowledge that they don't actually have, or pretending to have competence that they don't actually have, for a whole bunch of reasons that... They, they, and there could be a whole bunch of psychological reasons for that. Now, in academia, is this custom and practice? No. The, the overwhelming majority of people in intellectual life, in, in academia, and in university academia, are honestly striving to create new knowledge, to pass on the knowledge that civilization has learned, and to do that with the utmost clarity. But not everyone. And in philosophy, this is a particular particular challenge because some of the ideas are extremely complicated and subtle and so it is difficult to get that idea across no matter the, 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 the clarity of the language one tries to use but there is another kind of philosopher to my mind um, who isn't striving always for clarity. Now this dishonest type of philosopher has been getting more and more attention lately there's been a revival to some extent of the idea of the Sokol hoax. Now, for anyone who doesn't know, I'm um, just explaining this off the top of my head. Um, there was, there, there is a physicist, his name is Alan Sokol. And he noticed that there were parts of philosophy where the language being used was simply ridiculous, that they would borrow terms from science or mathematics, and use them in philosophical papers in completely ridiculous ways, in completely illogical, irrational, unreasonable ways, to construct texts that made no sense at all. But these texts would go on to be published in journals, and this would preserve the careers of these philosophers, because there is that old adage, publish or perish, basically meaning if you're an academic and you aren't consistently publishing work. Then you might not have your job for very long because one of your tasks as an academic at a university is to increase the prestige of the university by continually appearing in journals, by getting published professionally. Now, there could be a racket here created in certain areas where the journal editors, where the journal editors and the people who submit papers to the journals just have a Non-verbal understanding, if one might put it that way, they might have an unspoken understanding that no matter what kind of rubbish is submitted to the journal, it will get published anyway. Because we're all in this together, of pretending that there's something here when there's nothing there. It's very much an emperor, the emperor's new clothes kind of idea. Now, this physicist, Alan Sokol wasn't the first to notice that it seemed as though that it seemed as though there was this kind of dishonesty going on in areas of philosophy. These areas of philosophy, by the way, sometimes go under the name of postmodernism or relativism. And I should say that when I was in um, when I was at university and studying philosophy, there was a there was a pretty sharp divide between what were known as the analytic philosophers who were honestly striving to create new knowledge in philosophy and solve problems. They, they were the people They were the people working on philosophical logic. Um, They were the people working on the philosophy of biology, for example. People working on ethics. People just trying to understand what it was that Descartes was really trying to say in his meditations, for example. And then there were the other kinds of philosophers who weren't doing that, who I attended a couple of lectures here and there, where one could tell that there wasn't any real substance there. That it was all about trying to use fancy-sounding language. It was more an exercise in kind of weird abstract poetry to some extent, although they would never admit that. They would never say that either. And one one is left feeling as though uh, one lacks a certain level of intelligence if they don't understand these papers that are being written. Anyway, whatever the case, Alan Sokol, the physicist, decided he would write a paper that was complete and utter nonsense from a physics perspective, but using lots of physics terms. And he tried to see whether he could get this nonsense published in an actual journal. And he succeeded. And that has ever since been known as the Sokal hoax. And he wrote a book about it. And since then, there have been other examples of this, especially in recent years of academics, proper academics, writing hoax, fictional nonsense papers and submitting them to certain journals to see if they'll get through what's called the refereeing process. Now, one presumes in physics, chemistry, the hard sciences, medicine, the various other academic disciplines, that this tends not to happen. It's not impossible, okay, error is the normal state of things. It's not impossible for a fraud to happen in science. You know, scientific fraud does happen. But it's the exception, not the rule. And one hasn't seen, so far as I know, anyone in the humanities, writing a nonsense paper in physics and having it published by a good journal in physics. That simply tends not to happen. That doesn't happen. But more than once, hard scientists or serious people in the humanities have written nonsense papers, submitted them to these journals, these social science journals, and had them published. That's a real problem. So Alan Sokol wrote a book about his attempt at doing this, this hoax, and I strongly recommend the book to you. But if you're not going to read the whole book, reading Richard Dawkins' review of the book online is just fantastic. I mean, when when Richard Dawkins wants to make a withering critique of someone, he certainly can. And I just want to read the first paragraph of Professor Dawkins' review of Alan Sokol's book about... Fraud in the humanities, specifically fraud in philosophy, in areas of philosophy. And what Dawkins wrote was this. Suppose you are an intellectual imposter with nothing to say, but with strong ambitions to succeed in academic life. Collect a courtier of reverent disciples and have students around the world anoint your pages with respectful yellow highlighter. What kind of literary style would you cultivate? Not a lucid one, surely, for clarity would expose your lack of content, end quote. Now, I just, I love that quote. I fell in love with it soon after it was published in 1998 because I was, like I say, right in the middle of a a degree in this stuff and struggling to sift the sense from the nonsense coming from my own lectures at university. Now, you tend to get clarity in the astrophysics lectures and the classical physics lectures and the electrodynamics lectures and the, the, the relativity lectures. Uh, even if sometimes what would happen in the quantum physics lectures was a certain amount of nonsense. In the School of Philosophy, you did get this sense that uh, there was a sharp divide, as I say, between those ones who were trying to make sense and those who are summed up by that, that quote that I just read from, from Professor Dawkins, you know, not speaking lucidly. Because not speaking, because in speaking lucidly, if you tried to speak clearly, that would expose a lack of content. And this has been a great rule of thumb for me in my own mind. When I hear someone and they say or write something, and at first glance, I don't understand it. I've got two ways to go. Either, either the content of the idea really is so subtle and complicated that persevering will reveal the gem of truth, or the kernel of truth in the middle of that or they're trying to hide a lack of content. And it it tends to be easy to find, if it's one or the other, by simply looking at what else has been written by this person. So by way of example, when it comes to making sense, or not, of postmodernism, let's just look at Jacques Derrida. There he is. Let me read a short passage from Derrida and see what we can understand of his work. Derrida was the founder of the postmodern philosophy called deconstructionism. And this philosophy is close to my heart because it's ubiquitous in schools now. In high schools, the deconstruction of texts and artworks and of anything else really is the flavour of the month and has been for a long time. So rather than constructing or focusing on the constructing and creating of new artwork, new texts, it's more about dismantling and pulling apart This philosophy holds that symbols, language, for example, or whatever else one might choose to use, is insufficient to the task of capturing reality at all. Now, as a fallibilist, I regard language and other modes of representation as necessarily imperfect, but this is to say that whatever representation we do use, for example, if one uses language to describe or explain something, the extent to which this description, or explanation, can be improved and become more accurate over time, has no limit. We make objective progress. But a deconstructionist takes the opposite view. There's no possibility of making progress or of coming to represent or model something better. And so they see their task as taking apart any attempt to do so. It is destructive. Not in order to improve, in order to simply make the trivial point. This is not the ultimate truth. And that's because there is no ultimate truth or anything worth finding. So that's the point of deconstructionism. But let's read a passage from one of Derrida's more famous works, uh, his book Writing Difference*, and see if we can make head or tails of it. So here's the quote. Quote, That philosophy died yesterday, since Hegel or Marx, Nietzsche or Heidegger, and philosophy should still wander towards the meaning of its death, or that it has always lived knowing itself to be dying, that philosophy died one day, within history, or that it has always fed on its own agony, on the violent way it opens history, by opposing itself to non-philosophy, which is its past and its concern, its death and wellspring, that beyond the death, or the dying, nature of philosophy, perhaps even because of it, thought still has a future, or even, as it is said today, is still entirely to come, because of what philosophy has held in store, or more strangely still, that the future itself has a future. All these are unanswerable questions. By right of birth, and for one time at least, these problems put to philosophy as problems philosophy cannot resolve. End quote. So that's Derrida's writing. And what is always so offensive to me about the postmodernists and postmodern writing are the run-on sentences. The style is bad. I mean, putting aside the substance where, strictly speaking, if we were to analyse this, and I cannot be bothered getting into an analytical assessment of what's going on there. I don't want to evaluate the content here because it's just full of contradictions. But they don't mind contradictions. They don't mind violating the law of the excluded middle. They don't mind violating logic. What's really offensive as well to anyone who appreciates, you know, good literature and good English and clear writing, is just these run-on sentences where one clause or phrase is separated by a comma by another clause or phrase, as if the writer is utterly allergic to full stops, utterly allergic to sentences. The sentences are deliberately long so as to be more opaque. It's barely coherent. Well, it's, it's incoherent. It's not barely coherent. It is incoherent. Now, one example, just reading one example of postmodernism, that's enough, that will suffice, because all the big names in postmodern philosophy write exactly like that. There's no attempt to define a problem, let alone provide any semblance of a useful solution, such as is done in genuine philosophy, analytical philosophy. It is, as I've said before, word soup. That's all it is. But the writers, the postmodern writers, do not take this charge of incoherence as a criticism. It's a feature for them. It's not a bug. They say there's no sense to make in the first place. And so they take that seriously by making no sense. And all this would be laughable if it wasn't for the fact that these philosophies are taken seriously and have sway. And even if the texts themselves are not being read by those in power, their diluted forms or the central tenets are being taken seriously. For example, that all perspectives are equally valid. Well, that science has no privileged position when it comes to understanding the world. And if some politician or leader should ask whether the expert making such an astonishing claim, like, for example, some expert comes along and says, all perspectives are equal and have equal merit, if that politician or leader says, well, do you have any research or evidence to back up that kind of strange pronouncement? Well, of course they have research and evidence to point to. They can point to all of those journal articles and these sort of texts. And that, in a nutshell, is the problem with expertise in this day and age, expertise and research and evidence in public discourse at times these days. We need it, we need expertise, we need research, we need evidence, it's absolutely indispensable, but so few are sufficiently well equipped to tell the difference between what is good research and what is fraudulent research, between what is the relevant actual expertise on any given question and the mere pretense at expertise. In short, there's too little error correction and too much reliance upon so-called authority. If a person is designated as an academic at a university and they hold a position where they have the title of professor, then this is seen by many as all that it takes. And then these people go on to teach a new generation of students and and advise those in power. So that's all very disheartening. What is the defense against this? Well, I'm going to come to that, but first. Okay, so I'm changing venue yet again. And just before I begin the reading, we might just consider what is the defense against postmodernism or against cultural relativism and various other kinds of bad philosophy before we talk more about the origins of these things. As far as I can tell, the only defense, the only bulwark against it is actual progress. So physics actually does get people to the moon and back or to the ISS and back. It does produce better computers. It's on the way to producing quantum computers. Uh, Medicine does find vaccines and cures eventually. Science produces internal combustion engines. They work. The lights go on. The computers get faster. So science makes actual progress. And this is something that the relativists, the postmodernists, don't accomplish. They don't make progress. They talk about it a lot, but no actual progress is made. And so because science makes progress, we know that the explanations contain some truth by which we mean they represent reality with ever-increasing fidelity over time. Okay, That ever-increasing fidelity, that ever-increasing accuracy with which scientific theories represent objective reality, that can be called truth, Okay, if we're going to call truth anything. The truth content of something is just that amount of that thing which accurately captures objective reality out there some people reject that there's nothing much to say to them okay if they reject that Um, because the rest of us can see the truth of the fact that science works and meanwhile the the alternative perspectives um, the relativist ideas which drive social justice um, social justice is the new kind of religion in the west it has tenets. it has practices it has rituals it doesn't like criticism Uh, If one is designated as a heretic, one can have their careers threatened or even their person threatened. The language used in social justice has been designed, and it's evolved over time, to survive objections to it. The language of inclusion and diversity and equity seems unobjectionable. Social justice sounds altogether good, but any modifier to an actual virtue, like justice, it doesn't matter what word you put in front of justice, you're modifying it so that you're saying you're not interested in justice, but this other thing, this thing that is not justice. And that's what social justice is. And while enforcing inclusion or diversity, or even equality, enforcing any of these things is a form of tyranny. People need to be free to be included or not, to join groups without prejudice, and to strive to be better. But the inclusion, diversity, and equality of social justice movements do not permit this because they do not mean inclusion, diversity, and equality. What they mean by inclusion is giving authority to members of designated groups. And by diversity, they mean uniformity of thought, even if the outward appearances appear to be distinct. So, so long as people look different, that's diversity. But everyone has to think the same. And by equality, they mean equal. In other words, everyone must be the same, including think the same and say the same words. And so. As we get into the chapter, you're going to see that David's work and writing here, it it takes a sort of broader view of things. There's an absolutely crucial difference, we must say, between David Deutsch's critique of aspects of philosophy and the critiques that have come in years gone by from elsewhere. Now, it's true. You can look at the work of, let's say, someone else who I have great respect for, um, as a, as a science popularizer, Neil deGrasse Tyson, or the physicist Brian Cox, both of those are great, or even Richard Dawkins. These thinkers are also critics of philosophy, but it's a blanket critique of all of philosophy. So the difference here between David Deutsch and those other scientific-minded thinkers is that there's rather a lot of baby left once the bathwater has been discarded in David's critique. That is to say, Once he criticizes bad philosophy, he gives you the good stuff. And in fact, the beginning of infinity is the good stuff. And this is so refreshing coming from a physicist because they're a rare breed. There are not many physicists who have this level of respect for philosophy and are able to find the kernels of truth amongst all the bad philosophy, as well as the the merely false philosophy. Now, there are some other physicists versed in philosophy. And in my experience, these include David Wallace, uh, Paul Davies, and although I disagree with him in many ways, Sean Carroll, who understands philosophy cannot be discarded. Uh, If you look up Luke Barnes, he's an Australian cosmologist who understands one must have a philosophy to do science properly, even if they're unaware of it. And this is the nub of it for me. Everyone's a philosopher and has a philosophy. It's just that uh, many of us are unconscious of it. Those who say they reject philosophy as a useful discipline have a philosophy. Their philosophy is to claim they reject philosophy and everyone else should, and then act as if some other discipline can guide their choices and behaviour. For instance, in the religion versus science dispute, whether one chooses one side or the other or sees no conflict, that's a philosophy that they hold, a kind of philosophy that is at root guiding that perspective. A lecturer of mine at the University of New South Wales, Michaelis Michael, he's still there, um, he used to say there was a difference between having a philosophy and doing philosophy. What he meant was something like that everyone has a philosophy, that part is unavoidable, but actually doing philosophy means bringing that philosophy that you necessarily have into your consciousness and illuminating it for yourself so that you know what you actually think on any given point and why. So the point of chapter 12, A physicist History of Bad Philosophy, the point as I see it, and as David says at the beginning of the chapter, is to explain the broader reasons why the multiverse is not taken seriously as the explanation of what is going on in quantum mechanics. But this is kind of just the example. It's a prominent example to be sure, to highlight and use as kind of a lens through which we view the broader concept of bad philosophy. Bad philosophy is this technical term and David distinguishes between bad philosophy and merely false philosophy. So I'll steal David's thunder and my thunder from later on by telling you simply now what the distinction between false philosophy and bad philosophy is, as David explains it. False philosophy is common, and it's no sin. False philosophy, like false science, or false claims broadly are often, if they are honest, attempts at getting at the truth, they're attempts. I say honest there because there is an honest attempt to be right and getting things wrong, and therefore you make a false claim, so you were trying to get to the truth, but you failed, and knowingly making a false claim, lying, that's dishonesty. So there's a the difference between these two things. There's two kinds of falsity in the world. Honestly trying to get to the truth and failing and producing something false, and dishonestly representing what you thought was the truth. Okay, So they're, they're two very different things. When it comes to false philosophy, we have all manner of historic ideologies and dogmas from things like empiricism, which is the false claim that all knowledge can be derived from the senses, through to instrumentalism the false claim that the purpose of science is to predict the outcome of experiments. Or in political theory, the false idea that kings have a divine right, or the philosophy of mathematics, that mathematical intuitionism is true, that whatever the mathematician uh, thinks certainly true must in fact be certainly true. There are many false theories, and they are typically stepping stones to some deeper truth, or better yet, some better misconception. Falsity, false knowledge, um, false science, false philosophy, these things are common and no sin. Everyone is trying to produce knowledge and when they honestly try to produce knowledge and fail, then they've produced something false. But it it might be a solution to a whole bunch of problems that one has, even if it's not a universal solution in all cases, but bad philosophy. Bad philosophy is different to this. Bad philosophy, unlike false philosophy, in some way prevents criticism, and in some way prevents new knowledge from being created. And in this class of philosophies, we have things like relativism, which asserts there's no objective truth. So there's no point trying to figure out whether alternatives to relativism are true or false, because relativism just asserts that everything is a grey mash, if you like, and there is no right and wrong. There's no black and white on any particular issue. And that perhaps solid matter is made out of atoms, but perhaps it's made out of something else and there is no truth of the matter and investigating uh, won't do anything other than reveal one's biases on the topic because all we have are perspectives. And it destroys the notion to some extent that debate, discussion or criticism have any real use because we'll always have our own individual perspectives and that's all we have access to is our own individual perspectives and we can't possibly agree because there's nothing objective to say when all there exists in the universe is different people's subjectivity. I should also say here that um, philosophy itself as a discipline at the university is unusual, and David makes this point elsewhere in the beginning of infinity, because as an academic discipline, it consults the original texts, Um, and this is bizarre. It's not the case in physics that you consult the original texts. When you learn classical mechanics you don't go to principia mathematica the way in which newton originally discovered or explained the laws of motion the law of gravity instead you go to textbooks that might be the 10th generation of textbook when you learn special relativity or general relativity you don't go to einstein's original writings on the topic because people today understand relativity better than what einstein did he was just the first and so he had all sorts of misconceptions And not to mention that he wrote a lot of his stuff in German anyway. So we consult textbooks today and experts today when we try to learn the best scientific theories. But this is not the case in philosophy. In philosophy, the original texts are studied in the same way that a theologian will study the original texts, the original sacred texts. Or someone interested in the great works of literature will study the original texts. But this this is... strange and misguided and wrong and it shouldn't happen, and the reason it's strange, misguided and wrong and shouldn't happen, is precisely because philosophy is about solving problems. It's far more akin to science than it is to English literature. English literature, you want to cleave to the original text because you're interested in the language that Shakespeare used or that some other great writer or poet used. If you're a theologian, you're interested in what was actually said in those original texts because you possibly believe that they are divinely inspired, and so you want to know what words were being said by the Almighty. But in philosophy, although we have great thinkers, Descartes, Leibniz, Spinoza, Popper, what's not important so much is the specific words that were being used as the ideas that were trying to be conveyed, in the same way that relativity, uh, evolution by natural selection, uh, the theory of how the periodic table works, um, any number of theories in science. We don't care what the original discoverer of those theories actually said, unless of course you're interested in the history of science. Then you might be interested in the specific words that they used. But we're interested in the content of the theory and the content of the theory does not include the particular choice of vocabulary that that particular scientist had at that particular time. Now, there's also one other thing. We'll just mention this before moving on. Um, In terms of studying philosophy at university, the philosophers in their original texts are often studied out of context to some extent. Um, There is a context in which the philosophers were often working. Uh, Leibniz, for example, wrote about free will. But why? Well, he was writing in the context of his contemporary and some might say his rival, Isaac Newton and Isaac Newton's, the the vision of reality that one gets from reading Isaac Newton, although Newton didn't necessarily think this himself, was that of a clockwork universe, where particles in the void moved under perfectly deterministic laws, where given any possible state of the universe at one time, there was only one possible outcome at any future time. And so that seemed to rule out free will. And so Leibniz wrote about free will in that context, and it's important to know about the context. And so often this context is subtracted out. Uh, Popper was all about, when talking about the ancient philosophers, or even the um, pre-modern philosophers, was always at great pains to talk about the problem situation in which they found themselves. That looking at philosophical theories in the mere abstract was nowhere near as helpful as looking at the particular kind of problem that the philosophers were focused on at the time. So this is an unusual episode because I had so much to say in introduction to this chapter. And there was so much contemporary material that I felt was relevant to really showing how important this particular chapter is at uh, this time in history. It's been important for many years, ever since the beginning of Infinity was published, but it's only become more important this chapter 12. We're going to get into the reading now. We're going to make that an entirely different episode. And so I've split this up into two episodes after all. Um, This one, I guess, was setting the stage. Uh, But if you'd like to go to the next episode, that's where the reading is.